Son of God and Son of Man. When you hear those titles, what comes to mind? If I were a betting man, I'd wager that most Christians would say that both titles refer to Jesus, and they'd be right. Both of these titles are used of Jesus in the New Testament. But we're not going to start there today. Instead, we're going to explore their usage in the Old Testament. Son of God and Son of Man is a thread that runs through the Bible. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Today we are wrapping up our series on the grand ands of the Bible. Now, just so you know, there are more grand ands in the Bible, so we may expand on this series in the future. But for now, I'm excited to start a new Bible Threads series, and I'm calling it Storylines. I'll tell you more about it at the end of the show. Let's start with the phrase, Son of Man. This phrase occurs almost 200 times in the Bible, with a little more than half occurring in the Old Testament. The first time it shows up is in Numbers chapter 23. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In this verse, the phrase son of man refers to humans, either men or women. A contrast is made between God and humans. Humans sometimes lie. God never lies. Humans sometimes change their mind. God doesn't change his mind. If God says he's going to do something, he does it. That's not always true of humans. God is not a human, and humans are not God. In Psalm 80, the phrase Son of Man refers to a specific person, namely the King of Judah, most likely King Hezekiah. The psalm is said, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Psalm 80 is a prayer among the people of Judah for the northern kingdom of Israel, which was under assault from the Assyrian Empire. And at the end of the psalm, there is a prayer for Judah's king. Now, Hezekiah was the king of Judah when the northern kingdom of Israel was under assault. In this psalm, Son of Man refers to a specific king. There are many verses in the Old Testament where the phrase Son of Man simply refers to human descendants. An example is from Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes in a Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. Even royalty and descendants of royalty are only human. They have no ability to secure salvation for anyone, as the psalmist says. Again, human beings are not God and cannot do what only God can do. Here's an interesting fact. Of the hundred plus occurrences of Son of Man in the Old Testament, 93 of them are found in just one book. You know which book that is? It's the prophecy of Ezekiel. By the way, the book of Ezekiel is somewhat unique in that it 
provides specific historical references. There are 14 different events that Ezekiel cites in the book, which allows us to know when these events specifically happened in history. For example, Ezekiel was called by God in the year 592 BC to be his spokesperson to God's exiled people living in Babylon. Five years earlier, in 597 BC, Ezekiel was carried off into captivity, taken from Judah to Babylon. And, and by the way, this was no easy journey. The distance between Jerusalem and Babylon was about 1,700 miles. Try to picture just how far that is. Hey, I'll, I'll help you. It's the same distance as between Chicago, Illinois and Seattle, Washington, or from New York City to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And remember, in Old Testament times, there were no planes, trains, or automobiles. You walked it. Ezekiel served as a prophet to the exiles living in Babylon for 22 years. So the book of Ezekiel starts out in chapter 1 with an incredible vision that God allowed Ezekiel to witness. Then in chapter 2, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Ezekiel had fallen face down because the vision was so intense. Now, it's interesting that God never calls Ezekiel by his given name. God just refers to him as son of man 93 different times. Why do you think that is? Well, here's a thought that might answer the question. God allowed Ezekiel to see some incredible visions like the, the one in chapter 1. Another one that you might be even more familiar with toward the end of the book is the dry bones coming to life in a valley. Christian singers Chris Tomlin and Lauren Daigle have, both have songs about this vision of the dry bones. Ezekiel was also entrusted with being God's spokesperson. Because of the visions and being a spokesperson for God, there would be a tendency, I think, for Ezekiel to feel kind of important and special. At least, I would. Could it have been God's way of reminding Ezekiel that although he was a prophet, he was just a human being, just the Son of Man, and that God reminded him of this 93 different times? What do you think? Now, the phrase Son of Man gets a bit more interesting when we see how it is used in the book of Daniel. Like the prophet Ezekiel, Daniel was also privileged to see visions from God. One of the visions Daniel had was that of four beasts, each of which represented a different world power at a different time in history. The first beast, a lion with eagle wings, represented the nation of Babylon. Daniel was also a captive under the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. The second beast was like a bear and represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel was still in Babylon when the transition of power took place. The third beast looked like a leopard, but with four wings and four heads. The beast represented the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. The fourth beast is described as having iron teeth and ten horns. And then Daniel saw a little horn on the beast, with two eyes and a mouth. What a strange vision. 
This beast represented the Roman Empire. Following the description of the beast, we hear about a son of man. Listen closely. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. By the way, Ancient of Days is a title used to describe Yahweh, who is the eternal God. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So who does this describe? Who is this son of man who has an exalted role and an everlasting kingdom and whom all peoples, nations, and languages serve? This is a significant prophetic description of Jesus, the son of God and the son of man who came to this earth during the time of the Romans, ruled the world. So, in the Old Testament, Son of Man can refer to any human being, but can also refer to God's Son. Keep this in mind when we hear how Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. But next, let's look at the phrase Son of God in the Old Testament. Actually, it doesn't occur. Not even once. But, six times the phrase sons of God does occur. In Genesis chapter 6, for example, the phrase sons of God is used twice to contrast people who were faithful believers with those who were not. There's also a reference in Deuteronomy 32 in in a section that describes how Yahweh established the nations of the world, including the land God promised to Abraham. He set aside lands for the sons of God, the true believers in the Old Testament. The other three references are all from the book of Job. The context of each of these three verses indicate that the sons of God aren't human beings at all. Instead, they are the angels in heaven who always see the face of God. There are a number of English translations that actually translate the Hebrew word uh, sons of God as angels because the context indicates it. Let's move on to the New Testament and look how Son of Man is used. The phrase Son of Man is used more than 80 times in the New Testament and only four times outside of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One occurrence was when Stephen made his confession of faith just before he was stoned to death. Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is an obvious reference to the ascended Jesus. There are also two references in the book of Revelation that refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. The fourth occurrence is in the book of Hebrews, and it's the only time this phrase, Son of Man, is used in the New Testament to describe someone other than Jesus. 
The writer to the Hebrews said, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? The writer of Hebrews was actually quoting Psalm 8. It's the one and only reference in the New Testament where Son of Man describes a mere human. All the other references in the New Testament refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. In the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, there are exactly 80 references to Jesus as the Son of Man. And all 80 of the references are used by Jesus to describe himself. More on this in a bit. The phrase Son of God occurs about half as often in the New Testament, 43 times as in the Old Testament, and it always refers to Jesus. To call Jesus the Son of God is to state that he is God. A couple of times Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God, especially when he was challenged by Jewish religious leaders. But overwhelmingly, it was other people who called Jesus the Son of God, or at least questioned him about being the Son of God. Here's a list of some of the people who acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. The angel Gabriel, in announcing Jesus' birth to Mary. On multiple occasions, demons or evil spirits acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Then there were all the disciples in the boat after Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The Gospel writer Mark began his account of Jesus' life with these words, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then there was John the Baptist, Jesus' disciple Nathaniel, the centurion who crucified Jesus, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul in the letters they wrote, as well as the author of the book of Hebrews. Both Satan, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the Jewish religious leaders toward the end of his ministry, questioned Jesus about whether he was indeed the Son of God. The Jewish leaders understood that Jesus was making the claim that he was indeed God. In John chapter 10, they accused Jesus of blasphemy after he said, I and the Father are one. Then we hear that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The Bible makes it clear that the eternal Son of God came to this earth as a human being, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Theologians call this the Incarnation. Now, let's be honest. This goes beyond our ability to comprehend. Jesus is both divine and human? How do you explain that? In the centuries following Jesus' ministry, the Christian Church struggled with this teaching of Jesus as God and man. Early in the 4th century, a North African priest by the name of Arius proposed the theory that Jesus wasn't true God. Arius was very persuasive in his arguments, and it created quite a controversy, which became known as the Arian Controversy. As a result, the church leaders eventually called together a council of Bible scholars and church leaders. It occurred in 325 AD. 
And coming out of that meeting was the first version of the Nicene Creed, which confessed clearly that Jesus is true God. One of the scholars who opposed Arius at that meeting was a man by the name of Athanasius. Despite the clarity of the Nicene Creed, this controversy didn't seem to go away. It continued to a certain extent for another 100 plus years. So toward the end of the fifth century, another creed was written to explain both the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to reinforce the Nicene Creed's confession of Jesus as true man and true God. This new creed was called the Athanasian Creed, named for Athanasius, although he didn't write it. He was, he was dead for quite a while. It did, however, expand on the work of Athanasius a hundred plus years earlier. The Athanasian Creed, along with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, are still confessed by many Christians today. I'd like to share with you a portion of the Athanasian Creed to hear how the Creed explains how Jesus is both true man and true God. There's a lot packed into these few sentences. Here we go. It is furthermore necessary for eternal salvation truly to believe that our Lord Jesus Christ also took on human flesh. Now this is the true Christian faith. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, eternally begotten from the nature of the Father, and He is man, born in time from the nature of his mother, fully God, fully man, with rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as to his deity, less than the Father as to his humanity. And though he is both God and man, Christ is not two persons, but one. One, not by changing the deity into flesh, but by taking the humanity into God. One, indeed, not by mixture of the natures, but by unity in one person. For just as the rational soul and flesh are one human being, so God and man are one Christ. You might have to rewind and hear that again. And there's more to the Athanasian Creed. It's actually fairly long and in-depth. If you are interested, do a web search. It was originally written in Latin, but don't worry, there are multiple English translations. Now back to Son of God and Son of Man. It has been taught among Christians that Son of God refers to Jesus' divinity, and Son of Man refers to Jesus' humanity. Now, that's not wrong, but it doesn't reflect every aspect of the phrase Son of Man. We tend to think that when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was talking about his humanity. Well, many times he did, especially when he told his disciples that he would be handed over to sinful men to be crucified and put to death. Jesus, as a human being, would die a physical death. So yes, Jesus did refer to his humanity when he referred to himself as Son of Man, but not always. Let me explain. Let's go back to the Daniel passage we talked about earlier. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Son of man actually has a double meaning. It can refer to Jesus' human nature, but also, according to what we read in Daniel, refers to the Son of Man being an exalted heavenly being who is given authority to judge the world. Now, Daniel's vision is not the only place where we find this second meaning of the Son of Man. Jesus himself speaks about it on several occasions. Here are a couple of examples. In Matthew 9, we hear about Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee and arriving at Capernaum. There were a couple of men who were carrying a man on a stretcher who couldn't walk. By the way, Mark and Luke record this event with much more detail. This is when two friends led a man on a stretcher down through a hole in the roof of a house because they couldn't get in through the front door because of the crowds of people. Jesus came up to the man and said, Your sins are forgiven. Upon hearing Jesus' word, some of the religious leaders said to one another, This guy is blaspheming because they believed only God could forgive sins. Jesus knew their thoughts and asked them whether it was easier to forgive sins or heal a man. Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Did you catch that? Jesus claims for himself divine authority as the Son of Man. On another occasion, on a Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain. The disciples picked some grain to eat. The religious leaders were critical of Jesus' disciples for doing work on the Sabbath, even though this, this was not for, forbidden by Old Testament law. Jesus' response was shortened to the point. He said, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus claims authority for himself as the Son of Man. One more example. This, is, uh, this one is from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders who would later become a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus was struggling to understand and accept what Jesus was telling him about spiritual rebirth. Jesus points to his authority to speak on spiritual matters when he said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus said that the Son of Man descended from heaven and that he would again ascend into heaven. It's another example of the Son of Man being an exalted heavenly being who came to judge the world and will judge it on the day he returns. Son of God and Son of Man. It's one of the grand ends of the Bible. It's a Bible thread used to describe the dual nature of Jesus the Christ. He is both true God and true man, both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Thanks for listening. I want to give you a programming note. We're going to take a little break the rest of this month, but we'll pick right back up on March 11th with the new series, Storylines. 
Storylines is about people, places, and things that show up repeatedly in the Bible. They are references that are packed with significance. For example, some important things happen in gardens in the Bible and on mountains. There is significance in how numbers and colors are used. We'll explore them all in this new series called Storylines. Thanks again for listening. God bless.